0: Please help me welcome J. Lauren Norris. You know, there's only been a couple of times in my life that I truly felt intimidated, like like somebody had one over on me and there was absolutely nothing I can do about it. The very first time I was selling advertising for the farm and ranch directory in Tyler, Texas, and the actions of the guy I was negotiating with blew me away. I had no idea what to do. I realized at that moment I was way out of my league. And that's what I want to talk about in this episode of Leading Leaders. I'm Jay Lauren Norris with Leading Leaders Podcast. I came out of the Air Force and took a couple of different jobs, but Then I stumbled across a job where a guy had initially asked me to do data entry. He just wanted me to type in all of these names and phone numbers for all the plat maps in a book that he was putting together and then do some graphic design. And this was back in the day when there weren't a whole lot of WYSIWYG designs on your computer. You had to cut and paste all these images and then figure out how to make them on a printer or a copy machine uh, without having all the lines of the pieces you'd cut out. It was quite a different task of graphic design. But he realized then that I was uh, actually better at sales than I was at graphic design and typesetting, so he offered me a promotion and a pay raise, and I was excited about it. The very first sales call I went on with this project, though, was humbling and eye-opening and uh, a, a great discovery about people. I walked into the door of a seed company out in the middle of nowhere, East Texas. I had on my slacks. I didn't have on a coat that day, but I'd had on my slacks. I had on a button-down shirt. I walked up to the counter of the seed company, and the old fellow behind the counter looked me up and down, and then literally, without a word, walked right through the swinging doors and into the back. I stood there 10 or 15 minutes. He never came back. So I went back to the sales office after five or six other stops that ended almost exactly the same, and I said, I, I guess I'm not as good at sales as I thought I was. I, I, I don't even know how to get the conversation started with these people. And the owner of the company looked me up and down and he said, boy, do you own a pair of boots? And I said, well, yeah, I grew up in Texas. He said, do you own a pair of jeans? And I said, yeah. He said, put them on and come back tomorrow. So I put on my jeans and my boots and I came in the next day and he and I together walked into this same seed company and the old fellow behind the counter looked me up and down again and he goes, you was here yesterday. I said, yes, sir, I was. He said, where are you from, boy? I said, well, I just got out of the Air Force and moved back to East Texas and my granddad lives in Lindale and so that's the reason I came back here. He goes... Who's your granddad? And I'm thinking of all the people in the world, what are the odds that this old guy, 50 miles from Lindale knows my granddad? But I said his name and the old man's face lit up. He goes, yeah, 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 right. I I remember him now. He was married more than once. I said, yeah. He said, but his first wife was from around here. I said, well, yeah, my grandma was from Grand Celine. He goes, remind me of her name. And I said it and his face lit up again. And then he looked at me and he said, well now that I know who you are and where you're from, how can I help you? What, what do you want from me? And so then I went into my sales pitch. And I can tell you, oddly enough, from that day until pretty much when I stopped selling that product, <clears throat> every conversation in East Texas started pretty much the same. Where are you from, boy? And when I answered with, well, my granddad's from Lindale, my grandmother's from Grand Saline, and I grew up in Central Texas, that was pretty much enough to get the conversation started we were talking on their terms now this was negotiation sounds weird doesn't it see the leadership principle of negotiation means we've got to start with common ground and sometimes you got to take a risk in your own persona in your own self-confidence in your own ability to persuade you've got to take a risk and step out and say true things that resonate with your client, your would-be client, in order to win the day. I've been uh, just minimally perusing through this this wonderful book, um, Never Split the Difference. Before I get into this though I want to tell you about that most intimidating customer of mine because it was during the same season. I was selling the same farmer ranch directory and I walked into the and Hallmark Insurance Office in Tyler, Texas, and I had just spoken to someone else down the road and sold a couple of spots on the outside back cover, some of the most expensive real estate in advertising. And the guy wanted to carry two different kinds of his business, and so he bought, of the four spots on the back, position number one at the very top and position number three in the middle of the bottom half. And he was advertising a different form of insurance. So when I came into Hibbs and Hallmark, Mr. Hibbs said, so uh, I'll take a half page on the back cover. And I said, well, actually, I've already sold two spots on the back cover. He said, well, then just cram them together. I said, well, the guy intentionally asked for one and three. He said, let me guess, and he named the guy. And I was like, "Uh, happens to be. So he pulls out his checkbook He writes a check for a little more than the cost of the half-page ad. Lays it on his desk. He said, listen, I've got a meeting to go to. If I come back and the check is gone, I'll expect to see some artwork pretty soon for a half-page ad on the bottom half of the book. If I come back and the check is still here, then I know that we don't have a deal. Have a good day. And he walked out of the room. That was it. Take the check or leave it no negotiation on the price no yes or no about another position no compromise on anything else you'll either take the deal or you won't take the deal i picked up the phone and i called the guy who owned the directory and i said here's the situation he goes take the check we'll figure it out and i thought well that's an interesting way to do it because i don't know if that's integrity or not to tell one guy he's going to get number one and number three He said he'll never complain about having the top half of the book, and the other guy didn't care if he has the top or the bottom, so give them both a half page and be done with it. I was like, interesting solution. See, I was learning. I was only 23, 24 years old at the time. That was a a new field for me. I was trying to figure out exactly how to do this, but in in this beautiful book, Never Split the Difference, he says, uh, page 118, Never compromise because no deal is better than a bad deal. He uses a great illustration. He says there's a, there's a compromise illustration of the man and wife. And she says, you really ought to wear the black shoes with that suit. And he says, I really want to wear the brown shoes with this suit. And so they compromise, which means what? He wears one brown shoe and one black shoe. And everybody gets a good laugh at his expense because he's wearing two different shoes is that a compromise is that a win or is no deal a better deal where somebody is going to lose straight up see the compromise doesn't always have the best outcome in it we talk about fairness but is there really fairness fairness really says everybody's success looks exactly the same well if two different people put in two different levels of of investment or two different levels of effort or more work than the other. Should the outcome be the same? Is that what we mean by fairness? He makes another really good point when he talks about, in fact, he he quotes a book from 1980, You Can Negotiate Anything, where the negotiation expert, Herb Cohen, goes on a trip. And on the trip, he is in an international arena. He's making a deal for his company, for his bosses, And as soon as he lands, his counterparts say, "Okay, we need to know how much how much time do you have? Are you here for for how long? And he said, well, my flight out is on X date. And they took all of the time between meeting him and the day he had to get on the airplane to just wine and dine and have a good time and cut up and go to parties and socialize, et cetera, et cetera. And they didn't cut to the chase of the deal until he was in the car on the way back to the airport, ready to leave town. Now, what does that mean? That means they played him. They understood that he had a deadline to meet. He didn't have any options. He was going to be on that plane and either the deal was going to happen or it didn't. I believe there was a similar thing that has made international news about a billion dollars given to a particular nation by a particular president that he actually said, you know, I got six hours before I get on this plane. And either you compromise in this way or, or you negotiate in this way or I'll take the money back with me. And there's nothing you can do about it. And eventually they capitulated well same thing happened for here for mr cohen apparently he made the best deal that he could in the time that he had and negotiated the best that he could but it wasn't the best deal for him it was just the best thing he could come up with in the very limited time that he had and sometimes we as leaders we forget that we're taking a risk solely based on time we forget that we're negotiating making decisions with a compressed time or Worst yet, the illusion of compressed time. Have you ever asked, my very first introduction to Calvin and Hobbes' cartoon, was this illusion of compressed time and the risk that it affords. The cat was leaning against the tree and the boy comes up with a water balloon and he says, what will you do if I throw this water balloon at you? And the cat says, imagine the worst thing you can imagine in your life. The worst thing that could ever happen to you. And so you see the imagination bubble above the boy's head and he's thinking of all the bad things that could happen. And then the cat says, now magnify that times one million. And in the next frame, you see a wet cat chasing a little boy and asking if you really could imagine the worst thing ever and multiply it times a million, why would you still throw the water balloon? And the boy said, you piqued my curiosity. See, the, the looming threat of what could happen if seems so imaginary and far-fetched that he just had to test the waters, so to speak, and throw the water balloon. See, we have this pressing deadline of the, closing the sale by a certain time. This, this, it's phenomenally relevant and prevalent in the speaking and coaching industry, creating the illusion of scarcity. There's only three seats left. There's only so much time. This offer expires. I get them five, six, seven, ten times a day from all kinds of different organizations. Deadline looming. By midnight, make this purchase. If you don't close the deal by midnight, you don't get this offer. I've been in the room where people sell it and they say, this offer is only good until I walk off the stage. So you need to run to the back of the room right now and take advantage of it. And I've always wondered, what if I don't? What if I wait ten minutes? Would you turn down my money? Would you refuse to give me the same offer you gave everybody else? I mean, I don't know the answer to that question, but it is a question that we have to ask. See, this this threat of deadline is it it plays on a certain part of the mental aspect of the human, and ironically, it's not the logical part; it's the emotional part. In fact. He goes on to talk about this idea of negotiating. And he says there's no such thing as fair. This is on page 122, again, of the uh, wonderful book, Uh, Never Split the Difference, by Chris Voss. He says, he uses the illustration of, of a simple game. And I've heard a lot of people talk about this game. I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about it. I've heard Caroline Leaf talk about it. It's a, it's a test, if you will, where you take ten bucks, hundred bucks, whatever you want to give away, you give it away to several pairs of people in the room, and then you ask them to split the money. Now, they get one chance. They don't get to explain. They just get one chance. And if they come to an agreement on splitting the money, then they get to split the money exactly the way they agreed to if they don't agree then the money goes back to the host so in his example in his class he gives everybody 10 bucks and you can split it seven or three or eight or two or nine or one or four and six or five and five however you want to split the money it's totally up to you but one person has the money and they're the proposer and the other person is the acceptor and they either accept the offer of one dollar two dollar five dollar ten dollar whatever it is or they don't, and if they don't accept the offer, the money goes back to the host. If they do accept the offer, then they split it just like, he's de- just like they've decided. But at the end of the exercise, he says, <clears throat> after we run this little experience, I stand up in front of the class and I make a point that they don't like to hear. The reasoning each and every student used was 100% irrational and emotional. What, they say, I made a rational decision. I lay out how they're wrong. First, how they could all be using re- how could they all be using reason if so many made different offers? That that's a really good question. That's the point. They didn't. They assumed the other guy would reason just like them. If you approach a negotiation thinking that the other guy thinks just like you, you're wrong. I say that's not empathy, that's projection. Interesting point. And then I push it even further. Why, I ask, did none of the posers offer $1? Hmm. Which is the best rational offer for them and logically unrejectable for the other acceptor. And if they did and they got rejected, which happens, why did the acceptor turn them down? Anyone who made an offer other than $1 made an emotional choice, I say. And for you acceptors who turned down $1, since when is getting $0 better than getting $1? Did the rule of finance suddenly change? This rocks my students view of themselves as rational actors, but they are not. None of us are. We are all emotional, irrational. Emotion. This is really the key that I want you to grab hold of. Emotion is the necessary element to decision making that we ignore at our own peril, realizing that hits people hard between the eyes. Skips down a little further. He talks about uh, I can't even pronounce the name of this book. Descartes' Error, I believe, is the name of it. Emotion, Reason, and the Human Brain by neuroscientist Antonio Damasio explained a groundbreaking discovery he made studying people who had damage in the part of the brain where emotions are generated. They found that all had something peculiar in common. They couldn't make decisions. They couldn't describe. They could describe what they should do in logical terms, but they found it impossible to make even the simplest choice. In other words, while we may use logic to reason ourselves toward a decision, the actual decision-making is governed by emotions. Now, one of the biggest challenges we find in leadership today is this idea that masculinity is toxic, that risk-taking is dangerous, that pursuit of success at the, at the behavior or the, the audacity of the successful is also to the detriment of those who are not successful. It's kind of a jealousy-driven, emotionally-based, hierarchy-attacking psychology. It says, if I don't have what you have, it's because you cheated. If I don't have what you have because I haven't made the same decisions, because I don't have the same emotional strength, because I don't have the same kind of character and moral fortitude, If you have succeeded and I have not, it's your fault and you're wrong because you cheated. I see there are a lot of people who negotiate in deals, whether it's closing the sale or it's getting their way or it's building a better mousetrap. There's a negotiation that has to be done. You've got to negotiate with your vendors, with your customers, with your employees, with your cohorts, with your counterparts. They may be on your team, they may be your competitor, But you have to negotiate. And in order to negotiate as a leader, you're going to have to take risks. And in order to take risks, you have to make decisions. And you have to weigh in the balance what is a better deal. And is there a time when it's better to take no deal than to take a bad deal? And if you're not willing to make those decisions with solid emotional decision-making, then you're going to find yourself in trouble. And if you try to detach yourself from emotions and make decisions purely logically, That doesn't always come out so well either, as he illustrated. If you were using reason to decide how much money to offer the acceptor, $1 makes good sense because $1 is always better than $0. But see, sometimes the acceptor won't accept $1 if they know there's 10 available because they're greedy. That's an emotion. And suddenly these reasons go away and emotions prevail and we see riots in the streets. Reason goes away and emotion prevails and we see people upset about fairness. And we see lectures and we see arguments and we see political division. Because emotion drives behavior. Logic sometimes has to pull it back in. But if you're a leader who can't make decisions with solid emotional footing, you need to work on that. And if you can't make decisions and negotiate and be willing to take a risk and realize that sometimes I'm going to emotionally take a risk and it's going to hurt. I might lose. I'm going to stick my neck out there and I might not win. I might be going for the very best opportunity and end up with nothing. It's like jumping from one flying trapeze to another. The higher that game gets, the greater the reward is, the greater the applause, the higher the paycheck, the higher you can jump from that high dive, the more opportunities abound for you. But for every step up that high dive ladder, for every reach from one flying trapeze to the other, for every risk that you take, the danger is there of failing. And if you're not willing to fail and get up and try again, then opportunity will be hidden from you at the top of the ladder. If you're not willing to face the emotional pain of being wrong, making a bad choice, making a bad mistake, or making a bad decision and losing the negotiation, if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to risk that, then stay home. What does that old t-shirt say, if you're not ready to run with the big dog, stay on the porch? It's kind of a crass way of saying the same thing. If you're going to lead, you're going to take risks. If you're going to lead and take risks, you're going to have to make big decisions. If you're going to lead, and take risks and make big decisions, that's gonna come with an emotional risk attached to it as well, it could hurt. You might win, you might not. But if you win, it will be a great reward and if you lose, it'll be a great opportunity to learn and start over. But whatever you do as a leader, you're gonna to have to be morally, emotionally sound. You're gonna to have to take risks. You're gonna to have to make big decisions. This is a lifetime of decision-making, risk-taking, and emotional choices. Business is an emotional thing. We like to think it's logical. It's not. There's too many humans involved. I want to challenge you, pick up some good books, like Never Split the Difference, learn to be a better negotiator, read some books on neuroscience and brain pathologies and how people think and communicate so you understand who it is that you're talking to, because you might find yourself in the same place I did where the first question of negotiation is, where are you from, boy? I'm Jay Lauren Norris with Leading Leaders Podcast for tell like its TV. Have a blessed day. Subscribe now for our extensive video library of leadership lessons promoting faith Family and freedom. 2018, that I was praying, God, you know, he just needs this thing broken in his life. He's become involved in that class. And there's real spiritual change and real physical change happening in this guy's life, Today on Transforming I would Grace TV. succumb to addiction, and I would succumb to pornography. And the residual effect of that in my wife and my children and my household and my other relationships, mind-boggling, and yet I knew there was a call in my life. And I think that tension is what pulls men apart in the churches, and, and it pulls families apart. It, that, to me, is heartbreaking. My opinion, too, is that uh, the body of Christ has a tendency to crucify our wounded. Transforming Grace TV passionately reveals hope in broken relationships. Stay tuned. Experience God's transforming grace.